0: This is Dwayne Bradley, host of the Open Journal program, Mondays at 6 p.m. It's KPFT's radio magazine of the airwaves. We have long-form conversations with interesting people from in and around the Houston area. They may be artists, they may be academics, they may be creatives, but certainly the conversations we have are not little soundbite radio or TV excerpts. These are... 20-minute-long conversations, usually, and a song from a local artist each week as part of our Open Journal magazine package. Hope you tune in, and thanks for listening to KPFT Houston.
1: This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1.
2: I'm Sabali, a longtime supporter and content contributor to Pan-African Journal urging you to call now to keep local stories and radio on the air. Thousands of teachers, students, parents, and staff will be adversely impacted by the current HISD administration selected by people from Austin to remove 28 libraries from local schools that need them the most. We need to keep updating you on those current issues that are affecting the state takeover of HISD, the largest school district here in Texas. Support Pan-African Journal in our efforts to keep you abreast of what's going on. Go online to kpft.org and make a $25, $50, or $100 donation. And please, make sure to note in your donation that it's for Pan-African Journal.
3: Hi, this is August. You're listening to Pan-African Journal. This is KPFT Houston. Stay tuned.
0: This is Gerald Horn, historian, activist. I listen to the Pan African Journal on KPFT in Houston, and I hope you do too.
4: This is Pan-African Journal. I'm Akua Holt. You're listening to KPFT Houston, streaming at kpft.org. This week on Capitalism, Race and Democracy. We celebrate Women's History Month. The National History Women's Alliance theme is providing healing, promoting hope. Both a tribute to the ceaseless work of caregivers and frontline workers during this ongoing pandemic, and also a recognition of the thousands of ways the women of all cultures have provided both healing and hope throughout history. Visit NationalWomensHistoryAlliance.org online to learn more about Women's History Month. Why aren't
5: they talking about the working conditions that we've been working in during this whole
4: in San Francisco, women rallied against COVID and privatization.
6: What is success to leave the world a better place, whether by a healthy child a guarding patch or a redeemed social condition?
4: Civil rights pioneer, Arthurine Lucy Foster, faced racial mobs and death threats as the first Black student to attend the University of Alabama in 1956. She made her transition on March 2nd, 2022.
7: Palestinian women and Palestinian serious movement, resistance movement, who are really serious about resistance, who are really serious about liberation, cannot speak about justice for in Palestine without speaking about all sorts of justice.
4: Dr. Rabab Abduhadi says the struggle of Palestinian women is an important part of the global struggle for women. From Pacifica Radio, this is COVID Race and Democracy, a collective effort by producers from Pacifica stations and radio affiliates across the U.S. I'm your host, Akua Holt of Pacifica Station KPFT in Houston, Texas. We begin today's show with a focus on how women workers are in the front lines, of fighting COVID and privatization. In San Francisco, city workers rallied against outsourcing of public jobs to nonprofit agencies. During Women's History Month, these women workers are leading the fight to protect public services for the working class.
5: I'm Cheryl Thornton. I'm with SEIU 10 to 1. I'm the the Vice President of Community Health Chapter. I'm here with some of the members from Community Health Chapter. Karen, Peter. So we're out here today at this rally, and we were told to come down here because we were told that this was about bargaining or contract, and yet I get a text message, this is about filling temporary workers now. And I feel like this, this Staff Up uh, campaign is about outsourcing and privatization of public work. We have been down workers. They're not, why aren't they talking about the working conditions that we've been working in during this whole pandemic? I lost a worker, Ludwig Leoto. He died being an essential worker. We still don't have protections for our essential workers. We still need equal pay, but yet they're concerned about the temporary workers. What about the workers that are here now? What about the racial inclusion that's not happening? We need equal pay for equal work, and we do not need our union to continue privatizing city services. They actually keep our. Our salaries down because they undercut us with seniority uh, for overtime for things like that but um, what I really want to say though is is that this privatization is an attack on the working-class people of San Francisco we cannot afford to stay here inflation is gone seven percent we need our raises we need health and safety And we need the city work, the the government of the city and county to play fair and stop privatizing public work. We fought for this for many years. And so we want to retain public work because it's important to people of color. We can't get access in the private sector like other people. And when we go to the private sector, working like with Amazon, we get paid $15 an hour. We have to travel for two hours. How is that? No. We need to protect city workers, protect our retirement, protect our health benefits and and give us better working conditions. So HealthWrite360 is a private organization that is that um, our union organized of health care workers and they're union busting. They're taking public work and privatizing it. This is what is going on and as far as so that, that's really what's going on and so they can't pay the workers, they can't hire the workers because the city and the union is engaged in union busting. They are privatizing public work. And this is what they're after. So the city has found a way, I believe, to figure out how to privatize public workers and get rid of them. The, our union is in bed with them because they organized Right 360 And now Health Right 360 used to be part of the San Francisco Health Network that was the um, lines of business for the health department. And now they're San Francisco Clinic. They're their own network. They've even taken... I don't know, probably over 50,000 of our patients away. How do you take a private company and put them side by side with us? You know, those aren't public workers, so that's union busting all the way. Then, next thing you know, the demographics change in that district, and we don't need these clinics, but it's all connected together. So what has to happen is we need to educate our members at a grassroots level as to what is going on, because they don't understand what's at stake. What's at stake is privatizing public work, not having the benefits of a retirement and a health benefit. And that is so important after working for 30 years or 25 or whatever. Uh, Elizabeth Milos, uh, a member of OPTI and also a a
8: delegate for OPTI for the San Francisco Labor Council. Um, I'm here to support the the city workers, and especially because we need to stop the privatization of city uh, jobs and the outsourcing of city jobs. Um, it, and you uh, see, I work for you, University of California, San Francisco. I'm a medical interpreter. Uh, and the healthcare care workers uh, have also been facing uh, a lot of uh, the same issues that city workers are facing. And um, in terms of, you know... Uh, Difficulty ah, in, in, in a lot of in a lot of ways uh, the, the the workers uh, city workers have had a really and rough uh, this past uh, these these past few years right. and the, and the pandemic only exacerbated building. that yeah. and uh, UCSF workers as well the University of California has uh, medical centers that have been dealing with um, with a, a lot of patients and um, and the healthcare uh, system is also needs to be completely revamped we need a uh, yeah. Uh, we need universal yeah. health care as no well. Do uh, you think
2: they've used the pandemic to privatize and outsource?
8: Fire I think that they're, they're, they the government has been using the pandemic as somebody, an excuse for many things, somebody including somebody to privatize yeah, and to outsource, uh, think, and we'll saying that there's not enough money. But there's enough money out there. Publicly uh, publicly California has a lot of billionaires and the whole privatization thing. We're all connected some way or another. The school closures in Oakland is connected. To and the port privatization, and where they're trying to take away because the Howard Europe, Terminal from Bitter, the, the ILWU, numbers, the jo- a job source for, for fire the fire international fire longshoremen to, to, to set up a, a condominium out. in Oakland. And, and 16, everything and that has been going on here, it's the, the same culprits labor. or the privatization no scams the that are going on. The Fisher family, the Fisher dynasty of the Gap, has been also involved in trying to take away the Malcolm X classroom here in San Francisco. So it's an attack on. And workers and its attack on people of
5: color as well. JULIE, i ER nurse. We do not have enough nurses at the general or in DPA. It's not safe for our patients. We don't—we aren't
3: able to provide as good a care as we would like to, and the services that they're promised aren't available. What is HR doing? What are we doing with the money? We don't know. Part of the big danger, particularly to this city, is our population needs people who are dedicated to serve them. And people who are contracted, not against them personally, but they're just here temporarily. So they're not invested in our community as DPH should be investing in the DPH.
4: Women workers in San Francisco who rallied last month. Speaking to Pacifica Steve Zeltzer.
9: Women. Be a
10: priority, respected and upheld in society, given all the proper notoriety, never used or abused by authority. Women should be a priority. Women should be a priority, women, should be a priority, women, should be a priority, women. Be a priority. Women
4: should be a priority. Sweet honey in the rock. Historian Roxanne Dunbar Artiz is a writer, speaker, and professor emerita at California State University, East Bay. She is an author of numerous scholarly indigenous-related books and articles, including Roots of Resistance, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico and the Great Sioux Nation, and the award-winning book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Here, she talks about her book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a history of erasure and exclusion is out now
3: from Beacon Press. The idea of settler colonialism did not exist in history departments. It doesn't exist in most history departments today. Although the Ivy Leagues are slowly beginning to um, uh, change and kind of catch up with the field of um, settler colonialism. People in law school and get PhDs or medical degrees, uh, you know, don't have a clue about what settler colonialism is, what colonialism is even. And it, it is really then doesn't get into politics very much. When it does, it's always a racialization of Native Americans. And of course, there are you know, more than 300 uh, different Native nations and communities. They have different languages, different cultures. And um, they have land base. They have, have been, of course, lost most of their land base, but do have land bases. And they're still living under colonialism structurally. They don't own that land. It's communal property. It's under uh, trust uh, under the Secretary of Interior, who now happens to be a Native person, Deb Holland, which is unusual. And um, we'll see what what well, good that does. It's a form of colonialism, Western European colonialism that um, set off uh, the Portuguese, the the papal bull that that allowed the, the Portuguese to to colonize all of Africa and enslave all, all the people. Followed by Columbus' voyage and a papal bull a year after that landing to do the same. Gives Spain the Western Hemisphere and the right to enslave all the people there. And the first century of the of, uh, Spanish, or almost a century, to 1588, it was, you know, the Native people were enslaved. You know, that idea of genocide only equaling uh, death, that is killing, murder, is not accurate. Most of the people, Native people, didn't actually die. They were transported, just like, Africans were transported later to the Americas as enslaved people. Indians were transported, like the Natchez Nation in the Mississippi Valley, descendants of the Cahote, the huge uh, uh, civilization in the Mississippi Valley. They may have numbered, no one really knows, they may have numbered two, three million people. It's a very rich area, of course, you know, the greatest farmland in the world, and they were agrarian. They were almost all, they seemed extinct, but they weren't extinct. They were transported by the Spanish around the Cape of Good Hope and up to Peru, the mines in Peru to work in Peru. So the difference is in Latin America, there's a very large presence of so-called mestizos everywhere, but especially in the non-settler Colonies, of course, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay were late colonized when the Spanish took up settler colonialism because it was working so well in the United States. There you have really killing people off, driving them out, just like the United States. So you have also the Western Central America, all the Nahuatl-speaking people, possibly two, three million people also deported to the mines of Peru. You know, people all over Mexico removed to be other places and losing their land, losing their identity, their languages. That's one thing. But that wasn't settler colonialism, but is a form of genocide, just like enslavement in Africa is a form of genocide. Because the Genocide Convention, which is the only thing we have, it was invented uh, in 1948, the term to deal with and eliminate uh, and prevent the future any future genocide. It's actually a prevention treaty and the United Nations to do everything possible to prevent the Holocaust from happening again, but also any genocide. So the terms of the genocide treaty covenant is the only thing we have to assess past genocides. There's a, the Genocide Convention doesn't go in effect until a country signs it. So the United States didn't sign it, didn't ratify it. The Senate didn't ratify it until 1988, 40 years after it was formed. So any genocide charge that comes has to come after that. But I think that's still possible. Um, But historically, we can use the Genocide Convention to see what happened in the past and that was Ralph Lincoln's goal, you know, in the book he wrote about it, to be able to look into the past because clearly the genocide against Jews had its history in pogroms throughout Eastern Europe. And that was really a kind of form of settler colonialism in some ways. So settler colonialism is the minority kind of uh, colonialism, although it has huge impacts because it's produced the United States of America, the richest country in the world by far. It originated with, in Iberia with the, uh, uh, the elimination of Muslims and Jews, ethnic cleansing, taking their land, taking their beautiful civilization, uh, appropriating it, and driving them out. Not one Jew or more had to be killed for for one to look at that and say that's genocide. The uh, Genocide Convention specifically says it's not just about killing or mass killing. No one has to die, necessarily. It's creating conditions that make it impossible for a group of people to maintain their existence, including their culture. And it names things like removing children from the group. You know, the boarding schools in Canada, the United States, really throughout the Americas, that's an act of genocide. So there are several acts. One is killing. Killing large numbers of people is one. But it's only one of many.
4: That was historian and author Roxanne dunbar Ortiz. thanks to KPFT producer Jackie Baptiste.
10: Running faster, warrior is born, battle to be won, past, trauma, future, hurt, I'm a child of the dirt and I'm ready to give birth, planting a dream, panting I breathe, running towards the future with a handful of seeds, stronger than greed, I am stronger than hate, I stand under the shades of trees planted so long ago, a product of ancestral love i'm here because my elders dance in the sun they would give it all up for us and from day one it was practice like religion to prepare for the ones to come We. You forgot love. You forgot truth. You forgot how to live for a time beyond you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the song that is traveling through. It travels through time. Singers will die, but the song lives on through matrilineal lines. We are here. We can recharge, we're not in charge, nature's in charge. Look to the stars, remember who you are, stay humble or fall. We don't know it all, and we are not exempt from natural law. Live selfishly and the structure will fall. But if we live for those unborn, then the song will go on. So before you take a book off the
4: show, Lila June, Time Traveler, featuring Desiree Harp. You're listening to Pacifica's COVID Race and Democracy. I'm your host, Akua Holt. The struggle of Palestinian women is an important part of the global struggle for women. Dr. Rabab Aduhati is a San Francisco state professor and founder of Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies program. The program has come under an international attack by not only Zionists, but the SFSU administration, and the president, Lynn Mahoney. Also, her SFSU online programs were shut down by Zoom, Facebook, and YouTube. In June of last year, she talked about the role of Palestinian women and decolonial feminism, as well as the intersections of settler colonialism and gender violence in the movement to liberate Palestine. The uh,
7: Women, young women were arrested. But then people were starting to talk about Aisha all these women were arrested Later on, I, of course, I came to learn That there was the first Palestinian woman prisoner Was Fatima Bernawi, Who was actually from the Afro-Palestinian community In Jerusalem, her father was from Africa And she talks about, she was, she was double refugee And she speaks about what happened to her And she actually, she passed away But I actually had an exclusive interview with her in 1998 during my, my field research for my, and it's it's beautiful because she's talking about all sorts of things and I've translated it. And so it's kind of like ready to go, but also, so there were also the whole struggle of the women themselves and the way they have were repressed in prison. So one of the things was sort of your Haram, young women who are being arrested. Now they are at the prime of their life, many of them, And then, so there's all this arrest and we're hearing about some of the torture. It's not actually widespread yet. And the sexual torture was not widespread yet. It was later on, I mean, we heard rumors when I was growing up, but it was sort of among within the women's community, within the the Palestinian community and so on. It wasn't really spoken about a lot until many Palestinian women actually were courageous to come out and say, part of the torture was also sexual torture. So part of the torture was, was, Carried out on our own bodies, and the ways in which, and this is where the colonial violence actually interacts with pre existing social hierarchies. So the, the colonial powers in Palestine, as in, in Algeria, for example, they were relying, thinking about, okay, if we're going to target the women about quote unquote the question of honor, about the question of their social behavior, their standing, and so on, they might actually, we can confess and or become collaborators which is something that they have done many times and actually during the intifada of the stone 1987 what people called the first intifada there was a very widespread phenomenon called scott scott meaning making one fallen and israel was using it in order to recruit more collaborators by for instance drugging women when they're going to a hair salon or where some places they're taking pictures of them compromising and then threatening them that we will put the pictures out and i actually heard about it When I was doing my research with Palestinian women in Gaza, I was like, this collective interview, there wasn't enough time. So somebody suggested, do you want to meet with everybody? I said, okay. So we have like, I don't know, maybe 18, 20 women from different groups in Gaza meeting. This was in 1993, actually. And then everybody starts talking about, and one woman says, don't drink RC. And I said, what do you mean, don't drink RC? Don't drink RC, because RC is... the." Is the brand of Coke in Gaza that because you know people boycott Coca Cola? So there was a, co- a local, and I said, What do you mean by that? And she said, Even if you're going to your brother's house, if you're going anywhere, say I'm not drinking RC and I'm fasting to make up for the days I missed in Ramadan. Nobody is going to ask you as a woman, what was going on in Ramadan? Why did you miss? Because you're going to talk about menstruation and things that might be considered daib. So nobody was talking about it like shameful. So they would say, no, don't drink anywhere. Be very careful about it. And the women were actually reinforcing each other. Later on, I actually learned when I, I interacted more with al the Palestinian uh, queer group, Aswat and so on, that Israel actually was doing the same thing with queer Palestinians trying to extort them over gender and sexual issues in order to recruit them for to become informers. Now, the, why this is really interesting, the two issues are interesting, the sexual torture and the question of inform, because the colonial powers rely on what they think is existing hierarchies, which some of them do exist in, in our society, as well as all societies, in order to feel that this is a point of weakness, that they can come in and they can recruit the other aspect of it is that they also because they're colonial and this is what also what happened to all of you at at pat is that they assume that because you're a woman you're not supposed to be involved in the in the struggle they we're told that, how, stu- how stupid are you? Why would you even want to participate? You're going to be just getting sent to the kitchen. Don't even participate, as if women participate only for opportunistic reasons, only to women, as if they're not part of the population, they're not part of the Palestinian people, they're not also as oppressed as everybody else, like everywhere else. I mean, this is the same question. And I always say, why do you ask why women participate? How come you don't ask why men participate? I mean, why, why is the question, why is there even a question about women's participation and this in itself actually a very colonial orientalist perspective that comes from colonial feminism and colonial discourses that the other aspect of it is that they also expect there is this whole notion that our society is so extraordinarily exceptionally racist exceptionally sexist exceptionally homophobic and so on so then they're going to try to recruit some members of the society because they want to save brown people from brown communities so then when people come up and speak out and say this is not true we're going to speak about the sexual torture and the ways the resistance that takes place that like for example rasmiya Ode spoke about there is a book actually uh, that was produced by a group in england called minority rights group so called talk, making women talk and actually speaks about the experience of Fatma abu bakra in gaza who she uh, talks about step by step about what happened to her when the interrogators came in, and then when they started like taking off her clothes and when they started trying to touch her and so on, she's actually saying, I consider this torture part of torture. So in a way, I am not thinking about it as an exception, even though it's exceptional, even though the sexual torture is being used specifically and particularly about women, but also they were threatening women, we're going to go castrate your husbands and sons. We're going to rape you. Well, I mean, and they've done it. It's not like they haven't done it. The, the, the power of actually speaking up, and I'm not saying everybody has to speak up because not everybody feels that they need to speak up or need to come out. Or That's okay. But I'm saying the fact that actually exposes this perspective. Then the other aspect of it is, is the resistance of it, is that the colonial powers expect women, for example, not to participate, not to resist, and then women resist. And this takes us to the article. The, the focus of the article was partly about the Jamilat and also partly about Layla Khaled, in the sense that if Layla Khaled did not dress, and people might know the story of Layla Khaled, did not wear those sort of quote unquote fashionable uh, Parisian clothing and so on, and where she wasn't the one she didn't, she might not have been able to get away of getting on the plane. But then the people who wrote, I mean, my, my general purpose was actually the way she was constructed in multiple stories about her, Refer, references to her body, to her beauty or no beauty, reference to her, the plastic surgeries she made, reference sometimes to her being childlike, which we actually see a lot in descriptions of many indigenous women. There is a book about Rigoberta Menchu, and the person who's writing about her, who's actually supportive, says, oh, she was childlike, making tortilla. I mean, like, why isn't, why does a woman have to be, quote unquote, innocent child and childlike, not to be an adult, not to be... Presented as an adult for her to be able to actually participate. Why does he have why does she have to be reduced to kind of like somebody who cannot speak for themselves in order for her to be palatable by quote-unquote mainstream discourses? Then the other thing is that oh, she she speaks in the in, in even the, the the documentary that was made about her by a Palestinian woman, it was also kind of like, What did you you didn't speak? People would say, "Oh, she did not really she said, "Oh, you 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 hijacked the plane for me." And the interpretation of that is that, oh, she was so shocked that the group would actually inter but and what they failed to understand is that A, she was being modest, B, she was part of a collective. so she was saying, it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm an activist, I'm a member, I'm told to do what I'm supposed to do." So then they come and you say, "There, do, you're doing this." Oh, and, we, and she was so shocked. But actually part of it is that as members, of maybe who speak Arabic, no, we always say Allahu kalimatil ana. we hate I. The people don't say, we always say we, even if it's an individual accomplishment, we use the collective we because it is part of, I mean, it's reflection of the of collective struggle. And it's also trying to under, understate the role of the individual, which actually goes contrary two also colonial discourses that always want to construct exceptional. This woman is doing this because she's exceptional, this woman. And then we say, how many thousands and thousands and thousands of women do you need in order for you to say exceptional? So all of these courses are running. So I'm kind of like thinking about what are the discourses that are actually uh, being uh, constructed about us? And what are the discourses? And I'm saying about us, and now I'm talking about You know, Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, third world, women of color, indigenous women, members of um, all members, women and non-women, women, women, men, non-binary, members of marginalized communities, because you don't get to write your own history until you're victor. The victor writes the history and the dominant powers write the history. So all the descriptions that we hear in the media here today, and we hear all the time, again and again, even sympathetic accounts of what has happened, there is a spin on it that sometimes we say in our circles a dead the only good Palestinian is dead Palestinian because maybe they can speak for themselves so they can be constructed only as victims. So I want to talk about both. I want to talk about the repression that comes from different perspectives and the resistance that actually flips the colonial uh, intervention, flips the, 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 the neoliberal exploitation, flips gender gender hierarchy and patriarchy that exists and so on flips on its head and says okay this is what you're doing to, this is what resistance does and this is actually what has happened i mean in the case of many people but we're speaking about palestine in particular so to me it's sort of like an opportunity to actually deconstruct and when we talk about decolonial uh, decolonizing knowledge decolonizing our understanding of movements decolonizing the struggle decolonizing palestine and establishing a free Palestine, thinking about it not only as land per se only, but actually the land and humanity. We're talking about something that actually we're constructed different imagined society. That is very different than what exists today on every single level. So we never talk about people's liberation separate from women's liberation. We cannot talk about the free Palestine, just like Talia said, just like the Palestinian feminist collective recently said, but also like historically Palestinian women and Palestinian serious movement, resistance movement, who are really serious about resistance, who are really serious about liberation, cannot speak about justice for in Palestine without speaking about all sorts of justice, or in other words, the indivisibility of justice.
4: That was Dr. Rabab Abduhadi, speaking on Palestinian women and decolonial feminism and the intersections of settler colonialism and gender violence. This is Pan-African Journal. I'm Akua Holt. You're listening to KPFT Houston, streaming at kpft.org.
9: We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. You wake
4: up, tossed up, grind round in it,
10: blossing on that.
4: Flawless by Beyonce featuring Timamanda and Gozi Adichi.
5: This is KPFT Houston streaming at KPFT.org.
4: Up next, voices from Turkey. <laughs>
0: March 8, 2022, Women's Day in Turkey. The women's movement in Turkey seems to lead all opposition movements. This is visible again as women take it to the streets this year, celebrating the March 8, Women's Day. What is encouraging is that the women's movement seems to have expanded to now incorporate the labor struggles and the issues of racism more each year. On the labor side, The move of the unions and workers to make a special effort to include the women resulted in bringing women to the forefront of the labor struggles, as well as open up women's movement against the fascist state. This growth in women's movement, as well as the labor movement, is also a direct result of the escalating assaults against women and their rights. As more women enter the workforce because their labor is exploited more cheaply by the bosses, the women carry this fight against injustice into any avenue they can find. No longer being confined to the homes and kitchens, Women are able to associate, organize, and resist against the very obvious exploitation at work and take the lead in the struggle to break down the patriarchal rule. Turkey is not a democracy. It's a NATO country designed to provide cheap labor in the production of commodities to the European and the US markets. Any labor disruption has manifold repercussions to the local bosses who have to toe the line to fulfill their contract obligations to the imperialist centers. The local capitalists required docile, cheap, and regular workers to be able to squeeze a part of the surplus labor to themselves before forking it out to the international bosses. Women seem to be the best candidate for such a worker profile. However, with the burdens, injustices, multi-layered pressures, and years of exploitation has made women angry about the whole structure of the system. The plans to easily exploit women's labor has backfired in Turkey. This is evident in the military pushback women are showing in the streets in 2022 for the Women's Day. As Turkey moves more towards a religious fascism, the state had to intervene when resistance from women started to rise. Religion, patriarchy, and the market requires women to be obedient, silent, and productive. However, women were not having any of these. The Istanbul Convention, providing even the minimal and very fundamental rights to women, were cancelled one night by the Turkish President Erdoğan. Even a minor, meager protection was unacceptable as an institutional guarantee. If the women needed protection, the men would provide it, the rulers thought, as it had always been traditionally. However, this cancellation again was challenged with militant women's resistance. And only a few days ago, the procedure was reversed by an appellate court only after women showed that they would pursue the matter. However, women are seeing none of this supposed protection either at home, workplace, or out in the life outside of their home. Fed with religious bigotry, men are not accepting women's equal place in life and are resentful of losing the control over women. Nearly every single day, a woman is murdered for wanting divorce. Even if a divorce is granted, women are chased by their ex-husbands and murdered. Using his male patriarchal privilege, a soldier kidnapped a young woman, raped and tortured her all night before murdering her while bragging to his friends on the phone that even if he was caught, he would never be arrested or convicted. And he was caught, but just as he predicted was allowed to attend the trial without an arrest until women took to the streets in protest. A gray wolf, Nazi nationalist, took his guns to raid the opposition progressive HDP party's Istanbul branch and murdered a woman having her lunch there. The police hugged, consoled, and provided water to him after his surrender without even handcuffing him first. Turkey is seeing 110% inflation due to the capitalist crisis. The most price hikes are happening in the food and utilities. Women are left alone to handle the crisis at home and to cope and provide solutions to this catastrophe. Adding the pressures of the pandemic and increasing violence both at work and home, it is no wonder that the women have become the leaders of the growing opposition struggle in Turkey. However, what is new is that the identity as a woman is now being combined with identifying one as a worker. As the economic and class pressures mount, resistance and struggles combine. This is why this year women have already taken it to the streets more militantly. The state has banned all demonstrations, rallies, marches, and even press conferences about women's issues. However, Wave after wave, the women have defied the law and ruled the rulers and are forcing themselves to be heard. In many places, women's rallies are organized by union members and the struggle of women, the Kurdish people, and the workers come together as one against fascism, tyranny, patriarchy, and labor exploitation. This is Mehmet Bayram for Pacifica.
4: are listening to Pacifica's COVID Race and Democracy. I'm your host, Akua Holt. Civil rights pioneer Dr. Arthurine Lucy Foster was born on October 5th, 1929 in Shiloh, Alabama. She was an educator and the first Black student to attend the University of Alabama in 1956. Although she was faced with death threats and institutional racism as the first Black student to attend the university, she was suspended and eventually expelled. April 1956, she married Hugh Foster, a Divinity student and later a minister, whom she had met at Miles College. The University of Alabama overturned Ms. Foster's expulsion in 1988, and she was invited to return. She received a master's degree in elementary education in 1992. Here's the story of authorine Lucy Foster, which is also available on the University of Alabama's YouTube channel.
1: In Alabama, legends often have humble beginnings. The same can be said of authorine Lucy Foster. Born on a small farm in Shiloh, Alabama, authorine was a dedicated student graduating from linden academy before receiving a teaching certificate from selma university and a bachelor's degree from miles college in 1952 seeking the best possible education in the state lucy decided to apply to graduate school at the university of alabama despite the fact that the ua campus remained segregated at the time on september 13th 1952, Authorine was notified she had been accepted to the graduate school at UA. However, when school officials discovered she was not white, they quickly rescinded her application pursuant to state law and denied her admittance.
10: I don't think that she should come down here because my mother and my father and generations before that have always been taught the color and the white is a definite dividing line.
11: Integration is inevitable.
10: However, the South isn't ready for that step and I feel that that time should be decided by the South, and it is a great decision to
1: take. Backed by the NAACP, Lucy charged the university with racial discrimination in a court case that took nearly three years to resolve. In June of 1955, the U.S. District Court ruled in favor of Lucy, making her the first African-American student to be enrolled at the University of Alabama. Her initial days on campus were largely uneventful, but that would quickly change when riots broke out in protest of her admittance. Ushered by university officials, she hastily made her way through the crowd of protesters who hurled racially charged threats and debris as she passed. That evening, the university board of trustees voted to suspend Lucy from the university, ultimately expelling her citing charges of defamation.
3: what brought about these actions,
6: I feel, is that uh, lawless elements outside the campus set themselves over and above the law. Their actions brought great discredit to our nation.
1: Disheartened by the news, Lucy left Alabama and moved to Texas, where she worked as a schoolteacher, married, and started her own family. Over 30 years later, in 1988, Lucy received a letter from the University of Alabama informing her that her expulsion had been annulled. The following semester, she joined her daughter, Grazia, as a student at UA, enrolling in the master's program for elementary education. Four years later, she crossed the commencement stage to a standing ovation as a graduate of the University of Alabama. In the time since, authorine Lucy Foster has been honored for her valiant role in desegregating the University of Alabama. An endowed scholarship was created in her name. The authorine Lucy Clocktower stands prominently in the Lone Hood Plaza, and a historical marker stands in front of the building where she attended her first classes on campus.
6: If you don't know your history, you will forget your past, won't you? I wanted to shed brownie tears because I never thought that anything like that would happen to a lady named Arthurine Lucy. I will not fear, what can man do unto me? He can take this body, but he can't take my soul.
1: In 2019, she once again made her way across the commencement stage to a standing ovation, receiving an honorary doctorate in human letters.
2: Today, in recognition of her extraordinary bravery, perseverance, and the significant impact that she's had on the lives of others, it is an honor to present Ms. offering Lucy Foster with an honorary degree from the University of Alabama.
1: Her initiative and courage won the right for students of all races to attend the University of Alabama but her impact reaches far beyond the borders of the state. Her noble sense of justice fostered change throughout American society, influencing positive transformation across our state and nation.
6: As we rode across the campus today, I said, Judy Pierce, this is a blessing in disguise to see this university permitting me to come on here and be involved in whatever they are doing today. Anything that the university does, I glory in its mercy. That's a wonderful campus out there, and I know it, and everybody in the country must know it.
4: That was the story of Authorine Lucy Foster, which is also available on the University of Alabama's YouTube channel. Dr. Arthurine Lucy Foster also spoke at a dedication on the campus of the University of Alabama on February 25th, 2022.
6: said, what is success? To laugh often and much, to the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, I didn't get much of that, did I? And find the best in others, to leave the world a better place, whether by a healthy child, or garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even when life has been free easier because You have lived. That's what each of us should aspire to do, I believe, and thank you, Emerson, because this is what we have to do to consider ourselves having succeeded, right? Thank you so much, and I appreciate you. I love everybody in that audience, do you mind? (laughs) And those outside of the audience, really, I love you. I smile. And little friends and big friends and worshipful friends because we need all of that this. Day, don't we Peace. love you and so long yes. see you soon.
4: Civil rights pioneer Dr. Arthurine Lucy Foster was awarded an honorary doctorate in 2019 and recently attended a dedication for an education building named in her honor on the University of Alabama's campus. She made her transition a few days later on March 2nd, 2022. Miss Foster was 92. May she rest in peace and power. Her former student, Latrice Richardson, responded to her transition on social media. I was one of her students at Inslee High School. She was my mentor, such a beautiful, humble woman. I loved her class. She spoke French fluently and would speak to me in history class. After I graduated, she kept up with me in college. It broke my heart to hear she's passed away. Her legacy will forever be a staple in our hearts. My condolences to her family, and I pray for comfort and peace for the days ahead. I love you, Miss Foster. Gail Abernathy my older grandson graduated the night she was awarded the honorary doctorate, I was there. She now has a building named after her.
10: I want to be ready, I want to be ready, I want to be
4: Be ready, arranged by James Miller. Up next, the great poetess Sonia Sanchez. Love.
7: Put on
3: what I call the sleeves of love, put on the legs of love, put on the feet of love, put on the head of love, put on the
7: mouth of love, put on the hands of love, and love,
3: love, 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 love yourself and others. Love your country and other
7: countries. Love yourself. Love people who don't look like you. Love people who don't even like you. Call them brothers and sisters, but love them because love, love, love,
9: love, 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 love,
3: love. is the greatest emotion on the planet Earth. Love each other, your brothers and your sisters. Love, love, love.
4: And that concludes today's edition of Capitalism, Race, and Democracy. We thank all of Pacifica's sister stations and affiliates who contribute to the production of the show. Today's program was produced by Steve Zelter and Akua Holt. Our executive producers are Akua Holt, Paulina Vasiliev, and Steve Zelter. You can find this in all previous episodes at our website of Capitalism, Race, and Democracy. Pacifica.org. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at Pacifica CRD. I've been your host, Akua Holt. Thanks for listening. Before we go, I leave you with this quote As long as women are using class or race power to dominate other women, feminist sisterhood cannot be fully realized. Bell, folks.
0: Gerald Horn, historian activist. I listen to Pan-African Journal on KPFT in Houston, and I hope you do too.
11: Hi, this is Colleen from Helen the Blues, and here are a few music happenings for the week of March 11th. On Monday, March 11th, Mick Flannery will be at the Mucky Duck and the Pink Stones and Elijah Johnston at the Big Top. On Tuesday, March 12th, Barely Manilow will be at Main Street Crossing and Chuck Prophet and the Mission Express at the Mucky Duck. On Wednesday, March 13th, the Woodlands Jazz Knights will be at do Big Barn, the Eric Corban at Rehab Bar and Keisha Pratt at Scott Gertner's Rhythm Room. On Thursday, March 14th, Patrick Squire Band will be at the Continental Club, Macy Dott at Dosey Doe Whiskey Bar, Rick Trevino at Main Street Crossing, Guy Forsythe at the Mucky Duck, Gabe Wooten and Jimmy Pizzatola at the Big Top, and Sparky Parker Band will be at Shady Acres Saloon. On Friday, March 15th, the Monicas will be at the Continental Club, Jamie Richards Band at Dosie Doe Big Barn, Murali Coriel and Ernie Dewawa at Green Oaks Tavern, Old Crow Medicine Show at the Heights Theater, Longhorn Cadillacs at Katy's, David Graham and the Eskimo Brothers at the Mucky Duck, and Gary Puckett and the Union Gap will be at Main Street Crossing on the 15th and 16th. On Saturday, March 16th, Trudy Lynn will be performing at the Big Easy, Diuna Greenleaf and Blue Mercy at Green Oaks Tavern, John Oates at the Heights Theater, Mark Band at Cady's, Snit's Dog and Pony Show at Velvet Oak Tavern, and the Hip Waiters Flying Circus will be at Rehab Bar. That's a glimpse of what's happening in our area. For the complete calendar, visit kpft.org. We include all genres of music, so if you'd like your event included in the music calendar, send us much information.